I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Bill Strever. Bill Strever is the author of a national bestseller, Cold. He chairs the North Slope Science Initiative's Science Technical Advisory Panel in Alaska and serves on many related committees, including a climate change advisory panel. A biologist, he lives with his son in Anchorage, where he hikes, bikes, camps, scuba dives, and cross-country skis as often as the weather allows. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Bill Strever. First question I have, for how many of you is this the first time at one of the Zocalo events? So about, about half, it looks like. Great. Okay. Well, thanks for coming out, and thanks for your interest. We're here uh, to talk about heat. Um, specifically, according to the ads, we're here to talk about why people are drawn to hot places. And I have to admit, I was a little bit surprised when I was looking at the Wall Street Journal over the weekend and saw a small uh, sort of headline or blurb, why do we love hot places? Because I thought I was coming to talk about my book, Heat, <laughs> which isn't entirely about why we love hot places. It's more about why we love stories about extremes, and in this case, extremes of heat. I think really in terms of being drawn to hot places, people are more drawn to the comfort zone. You know, we don't like it too hot. We don't like it too cold. We're like Goldilocks, right? We like the Goldilocks zone. But here in Phoenix, you, you get some, some tremendous heat, of course. How many people were here in 1990 for the 122 Fahrenheit record day? How many of you, and keep your hands up, how many of you enjoyed that day? So how many people enjoyed that day? Put, be proud, put your hand up. You enjoyed the 100 and... So we have a few people here that I would call, I'm a biologist, so I would call you guys thermophiles. So you're thermophiles. If you love the cold, you're a cryophile. If you love the extreme cold and the extreme heat, you're sometimes called an extremophile, right? But Phoenix is hot. Uh, according to the statistics, something like 18 days a year that you reach 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Most people would consider that pretty warm. And about a third of the year, you exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And of course, those are temperatures in the shade, and that's, sometimes people forget that. It's much hotter if you're out in the sun and you have the radiant heat from the sun coming down on you. So th those are very warm temperatures, and it's a dry heat. I'm sure you guys tell each other that all the time, right? It's a dry heat, 122, but it's a dry heat. Now, if, if the heat were really something that drew people uh, to live certain places, and it was just the heat, we would have people in places like Fairbanks, Alaska, and Chicago, and Bangor, Maine, and they would be saying to themselves, let's move to Phoenix. And a lot of them do say that. But if it were just the heat, they would also say things like, let's move to Baghdad, right? because it's just as warm in Baghdad as it is in Phoenix. And they don't say that. So obviously, Phoenix has other things going on than, than just the heat. It's got a high quality of life. It's got a low cost of living. You can afford air conditioning. That's a good thing. Uh, beautiful landscape. Lots of sunlight, which is important to people like me coming from Alaska. And surveys show that, that the majority of people in Phoenix, 64%, according to uh, one survey I read, consider Phoenix to have a very high quality of life. And one thing I think that goes on in places like Phoenix is that people who love the heat stay, people that hate the heat leave. So it sort of self-selects for people that like the heat, and they accept the heat even though, really, I think as human beings, we're more drawn to that Goldilocks zone, that comfort area of sort of Southern California, but without the crowds, right? But whether you love the cold and hate the heat, or love the heat and hate the cold, heat is a good story. 
And good stories are important to humans. Heat, when we talk about heat, and we talk about heat in terms of weather, which is not the full story, keeps making the news. So weather heat keeps making the news. 2012 was the hottest year on record in the lower 48. How many people saw that in the news recently? A few of you. So the average temperature in uh, 2012 was about 3 degrees up, and that average was a a whopping 55.3 degrees up from around 52 degrees on average in the lower 48. I'm sure a lot of you listened to President Obama's inauguration speech, and you probably caught the fact that he was talking about climate change. So heat made the news again. Uh, His 2013 inauguration speech, he devoted 158 words to climate change, up from, I think it was about 19 words, no, sorry, 23 words in 2009. So he didn't say exactly what he intends to do about climate change or how he'll address it uh, in any detail, but he did talk about it. Another piece that was in the news recently, although the news itself was fairly old, last year the World Meteorological Organization got together a panel of experts, and they looked at the world record for the most extreme temperature in the shade. That record had for a long time supposedly been held by a place in Libya, uh, but the record was thrown out. This committee on the World Meteorological Organization threw out the old record in Libya from 1922 and awarded it to Death Valley for its 1913 temperature of 134 degrees Fahrenheit. So 134 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade in Death Valley is now widely accepted as the record. Why did they throw out the Libya record? Uh, There were problems with the thermometer. It was on top of some pavement and this kind of thing. So it was a false record. So it was thrown out, but it was still quite hot, I'm sure, in both places. And again, uh, though, on the upside, it was a dry heat, so maybe not so bad. But, you know, headlines and short articles that we see in the newspaper, they don't really tell the whole story. To me, the story of heat is a, a mix of science and culture and history and even literature. And it's a great story. You know, I I wrote Cold, and Cold was a great story, too, and obviously I was inspired to write Cold by my life in Alaska and my work up above the Arctic Circle in the far north. So Cold was an exciting topic, but it's a limited range because with Cold I could only write from sort of freezing temperatures down to, to absolute zero, which I think is around minus 460 degrees Fahrenheit. With heat, I had a bigger playing field. With heat... I could start out around room temperature, a little bit warmer, and I could go all the way up to the top of the thermometer, the very top of the thermometer, which we don't actually know where that is. There may not be any such thing as absolute heat. But if there is, it's very, very hot. It's somewhere up around 10 to the 30 or 10 to the 32 degrees Fahrenheit, unimaginably hot, so we won't even pretend that we can imagine that. But it's a much bigger playing field. But like all great stories... I looked at it as a writer and not as a scientist, and I said, well, like all great stories, to, to, be, to come across, it has to be told well. It has to be a story well told. So I looked to other writers. I didn't look to other scientists because scientists are experts at making very interesting things very boring. So instead I turned to other writers and I said, well, what would other writers say about making this an interesting story? So I turned to Lewis Carroll, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Uh, where one character says to another, no, no, the adventures first. Explanations take such a dreadful long time. And I turned to Stephen King. We all know who Stephen King is. And Stephen King was writing about what he called backstory and what writers sometimes call backstory. So your backstory might be your birthday. We now all know, uh, was it February 22nd? When's, when's your birthday? February 11th? 
Anyway, so some of us know, some of us remember, uh, but that's part of backstory. So backstory is where you were born, what kind of car do you drive. So Stephen King about backstory said, the most important thing to remember about backstory are that A, everyone has a history, and B, most of it isn't very interesting. And Kipling talked about, uh, the writer Kipling talked about teaching history, and he wrote, if history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. So when I was writing Cold and also when I was writing Heat, I looked at them as stories that should be interesting and could be interesting, but they had to be told in the right way. And to me, that was involved sort of uh, coming up with a new way to tell stories about science, or at least I flatter myself that it's a new way. It's not certainly not a normal way of telling stories or of telling stories about science. But, but what is that story? So uh, I'm going to just kind of flash through some of the aspects of the science, culture, and, and history of heat to give you an idea of what I see as the story of heat. And we'll start with the desert. We're in Phoenix. We're surrounded by desert. And we'll start with uh, a man named Raymond Coles, who was a biologist like me. And years ago, back I think starting in the 1920s, he was wandering around in the desert, and like we all see in the desert, he observed lizards of different sizes. And he saw these lizards laying in the sun, and he thought to himself, isn't it interesting that these things are, are so adept at surviving in the heat? But then because he was a biologist, he couldn't leave well enough alone, so he started to experiment. And his experiments involved putting little leashes on lizards, tying these lizards up in the sun, and what he discovered uh, in this seemingly cruel experiment, but biologists can be cruel to animals, what he discovered was that lizards, in fact, don't do very well in the sun at all. And what he wrote was that here I was, a heat-generating animal with a naked, unprotected skin, surviving even longer exposure while dozens of reptiles were killed in minutes by overheating. So what he learned was that these so-called cold-blooded animals, in fact, really did control their temperature by moving in and out of the sun. And as soon as they couldn't move out of the sun, they very quickly died. Well, he did just fine. And why did he do fine? Because as a mammal, and in particular as a human mammal, he could cool his body and control his temperature largely by sweating. And human beings, uh, many people don't realize this about human beings, about us, we're world champion sweaters. We evolved in a very warm climate, and we sweat very well. Even among mammals, we're very good sweaters. And that sweating allows us to cool off in the heat. But there's other parts of the story. So one part is fires. So fires, 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 fires. Are, I could have written a book called Fire, and that would have been a fun book to write, but it wouldn't have been as complete as Heat. So I wrote a book called Heat, but it includes chapters on fire. And one of the parts about fire that's interesting to me is that we live on a... We live on a planet that's about four and a half billion years old. Earth is about four and a half billion years old. For the first two billion years on Earth, there was no free oxygen. So there was no way for a fire to burn the way we think of fire burning today. There were no flames because there was no oxygen. Then photosynthesis started, you know, this wonderful chemical reaction with algae started generating oxygen. Oxygen gets into the air. Another two billion years pass, and now we have about 15% oxygen in the air. So we're at 4 billion years old, or about 500 million years ago. Now we have enough oxygen, 15%, to support a flame. But there's no fuel, because there's no land plants, or the land plants are just starting to arrive. So fuel had to accumulate. So first you needed the oxygen, then you needed the fuel. The source of ignition was always there, so you had ignition. But finally you get fire forming on Earth something like 400 million years ago. And how do we know that? That's the first charcoal records 
on Earth started to show up about 400 uh, million years ago. So when we talk about fire, we can go from talking about natural fire to talking about human fire. And of course, human beings and fire, uh, uh, it's an important relationship. And I won't go into it too much tonight, but it's an important relationship. It was important to the evolution of humans. But when did humans first control fire? Well, it turns out we don't really know, but uh, in all likelihood, somewhere between 2 million years ago and about 400,000 years ago, humans started to control fire. And when I say humans, I'm not talking about our species of human. I'm not talking about Homo sapiens. We inherited fire. As Homo sapiens inherited, we inherited fire probably from Homo erectus, one of our predecessors. So we had fire, and we had fire before we had houses. So things that we would tend to think of as houses came along maybe 50,000 years ago, something like that, depending on what you call a house. And these early houses didn't have chimneys. In fact, chimneys, as we think of chimneys today, didn't really come about until a very short time ago, 500, 600 years ago, chimneys started to become common. And yet people had fires in their houses. How, how many people here have ever been in a house that had a fire, that had a hearth, but no chimney? Where, where was that? Did you? In Colombia, you've seen one in Colombia. And in Peru, okay. And it's very interesting, isn't it? Because the fire rises up, the smoke rises up, and it goes out through the eaves. And it's not nearly as uncomfortable as you might think, which is probably why humans didn't get around to developing chimneys until 500 years ago or so. And, you know, it's interesting to me that, that even back then, there were, people, there were people that I call haters. There's always somebody that, that doesn't like a new idea. And there was someone who didn't like chimneys, and, and he wrote, I'm not going to try to read it because the quote's too long. But someone named Harrison, writing in 1577, complained about the lack of smoke inside the houses because he felt that it was harmful to the health and it was also harmful to the house because it, the smoke wasn't there to uh, harden the wood, as he put it. But then, we, so, so we have fire, we have chimneys, but how are we starting fires? Well, well, people carried fire for a long time. So some of you have heard of Atsi, the uh, Atsi, the iceman, the corpse that was discovered in the Swiss Alps or the Italian Alps. That was about a 5,000-year-old frozen corpse, and he had all of his stuff frozen with him when he was dug out of the glacier. And among the things he carried was a little pouch, and it was called an, an ember pouch, what we would call an ember pouch. So he would carry hot embers in his pouch with him everywhere he went. And when he needed to start a fire, he started a fire with these hot embers. In other places, you know, we've all seen films or maybe even tried to start fires with, with a bow, sort of rubbing two, uh, two sticks together to create a fire, to create a spark. In Borneo, the Dayak tribes people uh, supposedly used a piston fire starter. How many of you have seen a piston fire starter? Nobody. Okay. I have a piston fire starter, and I didn't have one prior to the research on heat, but I bought a piston fire starter. It's a small piston, and it compresses air. You slam the bottom of the piston to compress air, and that compressed air is hot. You know, you compress air, it heats up, and it creates a small uh, burning ember, and from that ember you start a fire. It's called a piston fire starter. So we have fireplaces, we have different ways to start fires, and we have Benjamin Franklin in, in 1745. And Benjamin Franklin, of course, is known for lots of things. One thing is for the Franklin fireplace. It's something I think a lot of people have heard of, although I think most people mistake the, the modern wood stove for the Franklin fireplace, and they were actually different. But Franklin didn't like fireplaces of his day because he said, the upright heat flies directly up the chimney, thus five-sixths at least of the heat and consequently of the fuel is wasted and contributes nothing toward warming the room. 
And what he, what he meant was exactly, uh, it was exactly correct. If you have a fireplace in your house, a traditional fireplace, and you're burning wood, and you probably notice that the vast majority of heat goes straight up the chimney. And in fact, some people will say that it actually cools a house because that heat going up the chimney carries with it all the warm air out of your house and sucks in cold air from the outside. And that may or may not be true, but the Franklin fireplace was, was a big, big improvement over the, uh, the older fireplaces that were in use at his time and, and are still used today mostly because of their aesthetic value. But fire starting, you know, I, I read novels. I, I like to read nonfiction mostly, but I also read novels. And occasionally I get irritated when I'm reading a novel about some, someone back in the 1500s or 1600s and they're on a ship or they're in somewhere doing something and they light a match because they're going to light their pipe. And the problem is that matches weren't really invented until about 1828. So the first matches were 1828 and the very first matches were not at all similar to what we use today. They were called, uh, at least one version of them were called Prometheans. And a Promethean was, was a match that had sort of a glass bulb at the end of a stick, and that glass bulb had some sulfur in it, and it was surrounded by a, a potassium chlorate, and you would take a pair of pliers, and you would smash that glass bulb and create a chemical reaction, and you could create a fire. Or, you can imagine, men being men, even back then, you could just bite it, the tip of this thing, and create the fire in your mouth. And those of you who have read The Voyage of the Beagle may remember Charles Darwin writing that he used Prometheans. He said, I carried with me some Promethean matches, which I ignited by biting. And Darwin took great joy in impressing native people by uh, virtue of being able to create fire with his mouth. So. And then matches evolved pretty quickly. The 1830s, uh, new matches called strikables came out. Then we went through a 20-year period where women factory workers were dying from uh, cancer of the jaw. It was called fossy jaw from the phosphorus uh, phosphorus leading to cancer in their jaws, and there were some labor riots that resulted from that. Eventually, a safety match was developed, and, and even later, matches called flexibles, which were paper matches, were developed. And that took until, I think it was, uh, well, the 1890s, flexibles came out in around 1895 or so. The first pack of matches that used advertising on the pack of matches came out, and that was for a theatrical production, and supposedly the actors actually hand-wrote the advertisements on the, uh, on the packs of matches. So we have fires and matches, and people my age anyway, and I think probably even younger people than me, they remember growing up and being told, don't play with matches. And Smokey Bear would tell us, only you can prevent forest fires and don't play with matches. And there's a great history behind Smokey Bear. Uh, it's another part of the story of heat. Um, and it actually comes, it came from wartime bombings of California. Japanese bombings of California led to the creation of the character Smokey Bear. Uh, later, in 1950, not too far from here, I think about uh, 400 miles or so from here, there was a fire um, called the Capitan Gap Fire in which a, a number of firefighters were overrun by the, fl by the flames or overburned. So, so they're trying to put the fire out. The fire overwhelms their position. They were very fortunate, though. They buried themselves in some lo loose soil, and the fire burned across their position, and they survived. And then when they were going back to their headquarters, they came across a bear that had been badly burned, and they adopted this bear, and they named him Hotfoot Teddy. And eventually that bear was, uh, had his name changed to Smokey Bear, and he lived in the zoo in Washington, D.C., until he eventually, I think, died of old age and was replaced by a new Smokey Bear. But there was another fire where another group of men were also over, overrun by the flames, over, overburned, burned over. 
and that was the Spanish Ranch Fire. And actually, this has happened many times in the history of firefighting, still happens. But the important part about the Spanish Ranch Fire is that it led to all firefighters, at least in the state of California, now carry with them something called a fire shelter. And a fire shelter is about this big. So it's a little, it's a small pack you carry on your belt, and it's a foil tent or a foil sleeping bag. And the idea is if you're putting out a fire and you're overwhelmed by the flames, the wind changes direction, something goes wrong, the flames are coming your way, you're going to be burned over. And you probably will die if you don't have some way to escape the flames. So at least this fire shelter gives you a chance to survive. And lots of firefighters since then have survived uh, being burned over with these fire shelters. I played around with one when I was doing the research for, uh, for heat. I did not play around with one in a live fire, but I crawled into one. And I can only imagine how terrifying it would be to be in a fire and be burned over. Um, and one of the, the pieces of advice that come with fire shelter training is that you should try to maintain communication with the other firefighters around you. You should try to talk to them as you're being burned over. And bear in mind, this is not a comfortable situation. This is a very, very hot, hot fire that's overwhelming your position. You're in a very thin foil tent. You know that that foil will melt if the temperature gets hot enough. If it makes direct contact with the flames, the foil will melt. The glue in the foil would actually uh, ignite and you would die. So, you, so you're hoping none of that happens and you're trying to maintain communication. And one fire shelter survivor uh, who had been instructed to maintain communication, his, after surviving, he said, if you hear anything at all, the things you hear, you don't want to hear, you wish you'd never heard. So that's part of the story of heat as well. And we haven't even started to talk about fuels, so, so let's come back for a moment to our friend Ben Franklin. And Ben Franklin talked about wood. And he called wood our common fuel, and he spelled fuel, F-E-W-E-L, back then. Wood, our common fuel, which within these 100 years might be had at every man's door, must now be fetched nearly 100 miles to some towns and makes a very considerable article of expense of families. So he was talking about an energy shortage, right? 1700s energy shortage. And he wasn't the first person to be confronted by an energy shortage. So people prior to Ben Franklin had run out of wood, and they turned to other fuels. So one fuel they turned to was peat. So peat is a sort of decomposed vegetation that you find in swamps and in bogs and in marshes. It's, it's roots, it's branches that are partly decomposed. And you dig this peat up, it's usually quite wet uh, when you dig it up, so you have to dry it out. But once you dry it out, it burns, and it burns quite well. My father-in-law in Holland uh, burned peat as a boy in his house. How many people here have burned peat besides me? One person. It's a, no, no, a couple of people. A couple of people have burned peat. That's great. Most Americans are totally unfamiliar with peat. Another fuel, coal. If peat is under pressure for a long time and it becomes quite old, it turns to coal. So people burn coal as well. And then, uh, of course, oil. So an oil is a big subject in our culture right now and has been for some time. Uh, but when, when we first started learning about oil as, as, a, as a culture, as Americans, and, and oil, oil has actually been around a long time in terms of people's use of it, but uh, increased use in the 1800s came from people using oil, crude oil. They came up from salt wells, so they were actually drilling for salt, for brine, and the oil came up as a byproduct of that salt, and they would run the oil away. They would just get rid of it, run it into rivers, 
But there was one person, uh, at least one person named Kears, who bottled that oil up and sold it as a medicine. So the first use of crude oil was as a medicine, and some people rubbed it on their skin, much like we would, might use Vaseline today, but some people drank it. So they would drink crude oil, and they would drink three, I think the normal dosage was three teaspoonfuls a day, one in the morning, one in midday, and one in the evening. And of course, when I see some looks around the room, Ew. So, so when I was doing the research for heat, uh, of course, I had to try this. I had to taste oil, and uh, I don't know. I could talk to you about what oil tastes like if you're interested during the, the question section uh, later. I did not bring any to pass around, by the way. Sorry about that. But, but eventually, people realized, investors realized that there might be a use for, for crude oil beyond just a, a, a very foul-tasting medicine, and they thought that use might be to run lamps. So the world was running short of another fuel source, which was whale oil, and they thought maybe we can compete with whale oil with this rock oil, as they called it, or petroleum rock oil. So they decided to drill some wells dedicated to uh, producing rock oil, and they drilled those wells in western Pennsylvania in a place called Titusville, Pennsylvania. And we say they were drilling, they were actually chiseling, so the old oil drilling technique was a big heavy chisel that you just pounded into the ground, and they pounded this chisel into the ground to a depth of 69 feet, they were just about to give up. In fact, they had been told to, to abandon the well, that it wasn't going to work. They were out of money, pull out, and that supposedly was the day that they struck oil and started the world's first oil boom, which arguably, arguably has lasted until today, that we're still in an oil boom today. So that happened in Titusville, Pennsylvania, back in 1859, and Titusville is in uh, a small town in western Pennsylvania. So flash forward to 1919, so from 1859 to 1919, and by 1919 we've become very dependent on crude oil. We've even learned that the gasoline component of crude oil can be used. So in the early days they used to throw away the gasoline. You would boil off the gasoline because it was too explosive to use in a lamp. But then somebody invented the internal combustion engine, said, oh, this gasoline, it's good stuff, let's keep it. And then around 1919, we'd become so dependent on it that another person wrote about fuel shortages. And this was an author writing in the National Geographic. And he said, where will my children and children's children get the oil that they may need in ever-increasing amounts? And are there no practical substitutes? The real answer is in terms of cost. And remember, that's 1919. You could read the, almost the same words and the same message today. So let's get back for a moment to something Obama mentioned, this thing called uh, climate change. And I know a lot of you are looking forward to breaking that 1990 heat record here in Phoenix and counting on climate change to help out. I guess I wanted to make a couple points about climate change. And the first one is that it's not new, this idea of climate change. A lot of people think it's something that came out in the 1970s. The, the ideas around climate change are much older than that. They, they can be traced back to Fourier in 1824, uh, Tyndall in 1861, uh, Keeling in 1958, uh, Roger Revelle in 1957, I think. So lots and lots of people, including a steam engineer named Guy Callender. And he was a steam engineer in the 1930s and was writing through the 1950s. But most of these people in the early days about climate change, they didn't write about it the way we mostly see climate change written about today, which is something we're not necessarily looking forward to and something we're quite worried about. Guy Callender was more typical in his view of the world, and he wrote, it may be said that the combustion of fossil fuel, whether it be peat from the surface or oil from 10,000 feet below, is likely to prove beneficial to mankind in several ways besides the provision of heat and power. 
For instance, the above-mentioned small increase of mean temperature would be important at the northern margin of cultivation. And the deadly glaciers shall be delayed indefinitely. So he was more worried about the world ending in another ice age than he was worried about uh, global warming. Uh, well, I could go on more about climate change, but I think we're, we're running a little bit short of time, so I'm going to jump ahead, uh, mention a few other things I could talk about. I could talk about firewalking. I could talk about uh, uh, crickets, uh, chirpless crickets that live on lava. I could talk about beetles that are attracted to fire. I could talk about um, Charles Dickens and what he said about humans and spontaneous combustion, or I could talk about... Emerson and his thoughts on coal and coal as a portable climate or about nuclear weapons and hydrogen bombs and Edward Teller who used the heat of hydrogen bombs or wanted to use the heat of hydrogen bombs for construction projects and he once wanted to dig a harbor in Alaska and he came to Alaska and he told the Alaskan uh, political uh, movers and shakers he said if you have a mountain and it's not in the right place drop me a card and he would move that mountain with hydrogen bombs. But, you know, whenever I give this talk, I'm always asked what was the hottest temperature uh, that I learned about or that I dealt with and what was the most interesting thing that I learned. And I'll sort of end my talk by sharing that with you. And both the hottest temperature and the most interesting thing I learned are the same thing. They were my time at the Brookhaven Super Collider, Brookhaven, New York, so about an hour outside of New York City where there's a super collider. It's sort of the size of the Indianapolis Speedway. And on the Indianapolis Speedway, I think cars get up to about 235 miles an hour going in a circle. At the uh, Brookhaven Super Collider, the nuclei of gold atoms get up to something like 670 million miles per hour, also going in a circle. In fact, circles and one counterclockwise and one clockwise. You collide those atoms together, or those nuclei together, at these very, very high speeds, basically the speed of light, and it creates tremendously hot temperatures, temperatures of seven trillion degrees, but it's a dry heat. Oh. But seven trillion degrees, and you, and you get some very surprising things going on. Of course, matter as we know it no longer exists at those temperatures. But maybe the most interesting thing that I learned, and, and the physicists involved with this work felt that it was the most interesting thing that they learned as well, was that matter at those temperatures was behaving in ways surprisingly similar to matter at absolute zero. And I, I found that, that quite interesting and surprising, as did the physicists who said that this was totally unpredicted by the uh, theoretical physicists who sort of scrambled their intellectual energy in order to, uh, to try to explain what had been seen experimentally. So that's what I wanted to share with you today, and I think we have some time left for, for questions and comments and shared experiences. Um, I guess one thing, one question I would welcome is if, if, we, if anyone wants to talk about climate change, I'll see a question to you. If you want to talk about climate change, ask me about risk management and climate change. But before we do that, let's have more spontaneous questions. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, so that was wonderful. Now it's time to move on to questions from all of you. There are two of us going around. Jennifer's on the other side. I'm on this side. Please raise your hand. We'll come to you. We'll come grab you out and, um, into the aisle. This is being recorded. Um, it'll be up on our website by tomorrow morning. You can share with your friends and family who can make it tonight. Um, so please say your first and last name before your question so we know how to quote you. Just kidding. But no, really. Uh, Jen's got the first question. Uh, Warren Edmund, I was just wondering how you measure the temperature at the uh, Brookhaven laboratory, or did you just calculate it? 
Yeah, so, so how do you measure the temperature of Brookhaven? Certainly not with a mercury-based thermometer, right? No, it's, it's measured by the behavior of the particles that are thrown out from the collisions uh, and how the, the particles, uh, basically the speed of the particles that are thrown out from the collisions. And if you really want to be famous, I think you could step over here in front of the camera. I don't know if uh, that's encouraged or not. But, uh. Next question. So the question is, how does heat, uh, have I done any research on how heat affects the mood of the population? Uh, you know, I personally haven't done any research, but I, there certainly other people have. And I, my, my own observation is that heat and cold do the same things to people's moods and personality. They make, make people sort of close in. Uh, at least that's my feeling. Uh, cold especially makes people sort of find a warm place deep inside their own body where they're not very communicative. And I think heat does the same thing, and especially when people... Uh, teams of people are out in extreme cold or in extreme heat, like for example in deserts, and their bodies start to chill or their bodies start to heat up. You can observe the same kinds of things going on, breakdowns in communication, uh, grumpiness, eventually stumbling, uh, fumbling with equipment, basically as your neurons fail to work the way they're supposed to and things like that. Have you observed the same thing here in Phoenix on hot days? So, so during hot days and rush hour, people get grumpy, even though they have air conditioning in their cars, I guess. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Question over here on your right. Before the question, though, can you blame them? <laughs> Hi, I'm Dale Johnson. I'm interested in your thoughts on drilling in the Arctic. Since you're working on the North Slope and living in Alaska, is the melting of the Arctic ice and the drilling operations there going to add to the problem? Yeah, so, so what are my thoughts? My, my thoughts about drilling in the Arctic go way beyond what we can talk about in the next hour. Um, I, I guess my main thought is if we do it, I sure hope we do it right, whatever that means. Uh, obviously, the safest thing for the Arctic is not to drill, but the reality is that there's a lot of people up there that, that would like to make a living. Uh, there's a tremendous resource base up there. It seems to me inevitable that that resource base, for better or worse, will be developed. So all I can say is I, I really, really hope we, uh, we do it right and we take our time with what we're doing, if it's even possible to do it right. Hi, Perry Becker. Um, since you'd brought up the very high temperatures at the Brookhaven uh, Collider, can you talk a little bit about fusion and the different strategies they have to contain those heats and the hottest temperatures that they've been able to contain them? And lastly, is all part of it, do you think we'll achieve fusion in our lifetime, um, the commercial use of fusion. Yeah, the, the, the commercial use of fusion or controlled fusion, I think, is because, of course, we have achieved fusion. Uh, hydrogen bombs are fusion. The sun is fusion. Um, you know, I, I actually don't have a lot of expertise on how to contain fusion. I think a lot of it's done with magnetic fields, and some of it involves use of lasers and this kind of thing. But it's not something I looked into much in the book, unfortunately. Otherwise, I could answer your question. Uh, but fusion itself, I, I would love to see us use controlled fusion in our lifetime, and then things like drilling in the Arctic would would go away if we could figure out an inexpensive way to use controlled fusion. I've been hearing about cold, uh, controlled fusion, though, since I, as long as I can remember. So, you know, I'm 51, so I've been hearing about it for 40-plus years. Uh, I don't think we've made a tremendous amount of progress. So uh, what's going to happen in the future? Who knows?
we can we can only hope. I, I would say though that a, that a cheap source of energy would change the world, and, and people talk about what's the next technological revolution. You know, we had sort of the the computer revolution and different things that have happened in our lifetimes. But I think the really a really exciting next big revolution is going to be an energy revolution. If somebody can come up with a, a cheaper source of energy, the way that would affect all of our lives and just increase the, the wealth of the average individual across the planet would be uh, remarkable and hopefully something I'll, I'll live to see. Hi, Henry DeYoung. Can you talk a little bit about the various definitions of heat, I mean, and how things perhaps have evolved uh, with the collider? Then, of course, that's the kinetic energy of the particles, and I think that's probably the most uh, common scientific definition, but can you elaborate a little bit on that, please? Well, my, my favorite uh, point on that subject is, is back in the 1700s when people thought of heat as a fluid, and they called it a subtle fluid. It was called caloric and had some other names prior to that, but the idea was that heat was a fluid, and if you had a hot object, you could pour that hot fluid into a colder object, and they, they sort of described it as being you know, analogous to a fluid, and they knew they couldn't see it, they couldn't weigh it, they couldn't measure it, but they thought of it as a fluid. And of course today, even small school children think of heat as a, an expression of, of particle motion, whether it's molecular motion or you know, subatomic uh, particles like, like um, well, the particles that make up protons and neutrons. Any other questions? Yeah, one more. In, in your research, you found any interesting work on a different measure of comfort as opposed to temperature. We joke about a dry heat, but I've seen other references in the news of some type of comfort measure that we would use instead of saying it's 100 degrees. We would say the comfort index today is 12. Well, sure, that's right. That's exactly right. On both ends of the thermometer, so on, on the cold end, people talk about um, the wind chill, right? And wind chill, it's a actually a relatively new thing that people look at is wind chill. On, on the wind chill side, you can also add humidity because a, a temperature of, say, 30 degrees with a 10-mile-an-hour wind and high humidity is actually colder than the same temperature and wind with lower humidity. And, of course, the same is true when it's hotter. If the humidity is high, it feels hotter to us. And why is that? That's because we can't dump heat as quickly if the sweat doesn't evaporate from our skin, which is how we cool ourselves. That's the main way we cool ourselves. If that sweat is not evaporating quickly because it's so humid, we don't cool off. So people talk about the, the heat index, I think, in the United States is the most common expression. And I think that's what you're getting at. But the, the other part of the sort of comfort level, of course, is, is wind. So you can tolerate much uh, warmer temperatures in a particular humidity if it's also windy so that, that uh, your, your sweat is evaporating and being blown away at the same time. Then you can also talk about things like sunlight and sun exposure, which makes a huge, huge difference, as anyone would know that spent time in, in warm climate to avoid the sun. Is that the sort of thing you were getting at? No, no, I don't, I don't think there's a standard, and I think, I mean, you have to imagine when you calibrate these things, if you're talking about human comfort, different people would express their comfort zones in different ways, and a lot of that's going to depend on your build and even on your behaviors, right? So one person, because of their behavioral adaptations to a climate, might be much more comfortable than another, so it's kind of hard to calibrate these scales. And I think even with things like heat index in different parts of the world, people will, will offer a heat index uh, temperature or heat index number, and it's actually they're derived in a different way. It may not even mean the same thing. One more question over here. 
Have you, in your investigation, did you write about any of, a, any of the means of how people mitigate heat, whether they do it for heat sinks during the day with their buildings or use of clothing and how they use clothing for uh, dealing with heat or to get warm? You know, or is it just strictly about heat? Yeah, no, no I did. I mean, the, the book kind of rambles all over the place, and, and that certainly appears. But it's not – if you wanted a treatise on how to build a house in Arizona that minimized the need for air conditioning, you wouldn't find it in heat. But you might find reference to it in the endnotes because I use a lot of endnotes to refer people to more uh, technical sources for that kind of thing. But in, in terms of what people do, um, in, a, in my chapter on surviving in deserts, I talk about a, a person named Pablo Valencia who in 1905 was out wandering around in the desert near Las Vegas, got separated from his... Uh, partner and spent, if I remember, seven days without water in the desert, which nobody thought was possible at that time. And he survived, but he barely survived. And I use that as a way to kind of lead into human adaptations to extreme heat, not so much from housing and that sort of thing, but more from physiological adaptations. So things like your blood plasma levels increase, your salt content and your sweat decreases and things like that. Uh, but also about behaviors. And, you know, behaviors are the number one way, in my opinion, that people adapt to extreme heat and, for that matter, extreme cold. So those behaviors are things like how we dress when we're active and when we're inactive, uh, how we respond to the shade, how we stand. So if, if you look at people unconsciously, I think for most people it's unconscious, and they're in the sun and it's a hot day, they'll turn their body sideways to the sun to expose the, the smallest amount of their body to the sun, whereas in a cold climate they'll do the exact opposite. They'll turn their body uh, front on to the sun to absorb as much of that sort of radiant heat as they can, can gather. Question in the middle. I'm Simon Ortiz. I'm uh, wondering if the figure that you uh, quoted a while ago in the collider, it was like several hundred million degrees. Is that hotter than the sun? Because we're always, I think, uh, told that uh, the sun is the hottest thing in the world. Yes, it's uh, considerably hotter than the sun, and the sun is certainly not the hottest thing in the universe. The, the surface of the sun is even not especially hot. It's around 11,000 uh, 11, uh, Fahrenheit, I think. The core of the sun, where the reactions go on, is quite hot. Of course, it's fusion, fusion reactions, similar to what would happen in a thermonuclear uh, device or a hydrogen bomb. So the core of the sun is very hot, but it's nowhere near 7 trillion degrees. 7 trillion degrees is, is a temperature that would have existed uh, in nature, a millisecond or two milliseconds, or I think it's 100 milliseconds after the Big Bang. So there was a singularity that contained all the energy and matter in the world, and it very rapidly expanded and reached a temperature of 7 trillion degrees. At the first instant, the universe would have been much hotter than that. Um, it's funny, I just came up with this. I, I heard on a sustainability program on um, PBS, they have uh, here locally uh, Horizon, and there was a gentleman from Australia that was talking about a company in Viro Mission that they're building, hopefully to get permits to build a huge tower taller than the Eiffel Tower that has mirrors circulating around it, is going to generate a, a large amount of heat, and that heat will be directed towards turbines in the middle of that tower, and they will supply 150,000 homes with clean energy. Can you kind of explain that, how that's possible? Uh, how, how would that air be moved into those turbines? 
Well, if I understand you right, it sounds like they're going to basically use mirrors as a big solar collector to concentrate heat from the sun. Concentrate, yes. And then that, that heat would probably be used to boil water in a closed-circuit steam turbine arrangement. That would oh, be my inside guess. inside the tower, possibly? That, that would be my guess. I'm, I'm not familiar with that yeah. exact project, but that's, that's a, an old idea. Okay. Before we move on to one last question, I want to remind you all that we have a reception going on as soon as this is finished. Downstairs in the lobby, we have wine, we have beer, we have water. Um, so if you guys, could all, you guys are all welcome to join us. Um, the ASU Art Museum ha does have copies of Mr. Schriever's book, Heat. Please pick up a copy, and we will see you at the reception. Let me get one last question. I, I'm Mike Bell. <clears throat> Um, this is a follow-on about uh, heat and comfort uh, rating. What about cold? We talk about wind chill, but what about humidity and cold? Yeah, I, and I, I tried to mention that too. Definitely humidity makes a big difference when it's cold, and that's why, for example, if you go to London where it's very humid and 20 degrees, it, it often feels like this really terrible bone-chilling cold that you just can't get over, whereas you come to parts of Alaska and it's uh, the same air temperature, but it barely feels cold at all. In fact, you'll see Alaskans wandering around in T-shirts, and that's because of the humidity. That, that water that's in the air is just sucking the heat out of your body. Okay, so I, th I think because questions were standing between us and alcohol, I think, uh, I think we're being cut off. Is that right? Okay, thank you. Thank you.